Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Happy summer. Feels like that has officially begun as of this past weekend. And before I get too far along, I just wanted to say congratulations to all of our graduating seniors. Can we give it up for those? folks, and not just our graduating seniors, but to their families and all the educators and those of you that serve in administration all across the board with our educational system. We are so grateful for all of you and, and then our promoting eighth graders. And all around this building, kids are moving up in the new places, and so we're glad that they have finished out that school year. I myself and Matt, we are grateful that our older two kids are done. That feels like such a gift. And then this fall, Truy is going to TK, which is crazy. That is wild. Uh, for the rest of you, if I haven't met you before, it's a uh, privilege to be here. My name is Jed, and I serve as one of our pastors on staff. So if you're online or in person, whether it's your first time here, or you call Sunridge your home church family. We're just glad that you would give us a portion of your weekend and valuable time. Uh, just a few moments ago, you were greeted this morning by a great friend of mine. Uh, Brother Tom Matson is here. You can give it up for Tom again. Uh, I know he doesn't like it that I do this, and if I'd have planned it ahead, I would have put a picture of his sweet daughter, Monroe. She is my absolute fave, and so Tom and Monroe drove out this morning early in the morning, dropped Monroe off with Auntie Mouse so that Tom could help lead worship for us, and this is also a shameless plug because uh, we didn't have electric guitars to play today, and so Tom had to drive all the way out to Orblinda. So if you play electric guitar, please come talk to me so that on the weekends that uh, I take my time up to bat here, Tom doesn't have to drive out. But now that I'm thinking about it, we do want him to be here more often. Never mind, don't come talk to me. We are in a series where we are studying through the book of Acts. And when we look at the book of Acts, we are talking about the first 30 or so years of what we'd refer to as the church's history, the history of the church. And when we say church, we're not just talking about a building or a place. In the language, we have the word ecclesia which was a political term, the called out ones, people assembling. And so it is about people, which is why a good definition for the church is a movement, a movement of people in response to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our heritage. And we are here today because a few thousand years ago, people were provoked by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this wild, audacious thing. We've talked about that time and time again, and we wouldn't be here today if it were not even for just the idea of Jesus and the resurrection. And so the church, the gathering, the called out ones, these people are moving in response. And so we're studying through that book. It is noted as part two of our series. We started in Luke. That was term season one of the show. And this is season two, the same 
author is writing to chronicle about the history of this early movement. And if you look at the rest of your New Testament, many of the letters therein can be seen as spinoffs of this season two. And it's really fun because as you read through the book of Acts, the more familiar you get with what's in the rest of your New Testament, you'll start seeing that those letters, many of them actually take place. Those are the spinoffs, the more details of what is happening here in this chronicling of the early church. But today I was tasked with Acts chapter 2, verse 31, all the way to chapter 4, verse 31. And my friend Austin read to you from the concluding parts of that section where we have the apostles Peter and John, who have just healed a man through the name of Jesus, who had been lame and unable to walk for 40 or so years. And this miraculous event has caused an uprising of sorts. There is awe, there is amazement, but there's also frustration, particularly amongst the religious elite, because these two apostles, these followers of Jesus are not just going around healing people. They are continuing to talk and speak of and use the name, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus that to this day continues to get people a little bit uncomfortable. There's something about the name of Jesus. And even at that point in history, when Jesus' name is being used, when it is being spoken, it causes surrounders to wonder what in the world is going on. And so today, as we study through this section, we're going to be looking not just at that name, but we're going to be asking ourselves what and how happened at that point in time that would bring us to this moment here today and, of course, even beyond us. So here's your first fill in the blank if you're following along. When we see a desirable that, we want to know how and what. As human beings, we're hardwired with mechanisms. It's pretty remarkable to want to take observable phenomenon and then attribute cause and effect to it. We want to understand how things work. And I'll tell you, if my son Truett were in the room right now, four-year-old Truett, and he saw Mr. Austin, who was just on the stage a few moments ago, Truett would tell you that Mr. Austin must sleep a lot. And now you're like, what in the world are you talking about, Jed? Well, it wasn't too long ago when Truett was probably around the age of two, as he was struggling with taking naps, I decided to remind him that one of the ways that we grow as human beings is by what? Sleeping. I mean, that's literally what happens. It's called growth hormone. It happens while we are asleep, but that's not enough, right? That's not enough to get a little guy like Truett to want to sleep. And so I had to get a little bit more vain because some way, somehow, at the age of two years old, he's already vain. And so I explained to Truett that if you want muscles when you grow up, you must sleep because these are called muscle naps. And so now, sure enough, whenever Truett wakes up from a nap, he legitimately has me check his biceps. Yeah. Daddy, have they grown? Yes, they have. Yes, they have. And quite frankly, I actually think they are growing. That kid is pretty darn strong. And so again, when, as human beings, we see something that we desire and we want to know how and what does it take to get there. So let's take us A few verses back, the very beginning of this section that I've been tasked with, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, and it's up on the screens. 
And it says this, So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. Now this is on the back end of what Britt taught last week where Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is sharing the gospel, this message, where all sorts of hearers are hearing about Jesus Christ. And I can remember being a kid in church hearing those words, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that came after it said the people were cut to the heart and asked, what then shall we do? And so Peter has this riveting message that speaks the name of Jesus, and people want to know how. How can I get that? How can I be connected to him? And Peter responds, and apparently 3,000 persons, people, souls, whole beings are added that day. So here's your question that many have tried to answer based off of a very small portion of our Bibles. How and what caused the church numbers to grow? Now, if you notice in your fill in the blank, that church part there is struck out. It is striked through. Because here is the honest confession I think many of us need to make. When we think about this section and we see that there are 12 and then 120 or so people that suddenly swells into 3,000, that's 2,400%. We are asking, what in the world did they do to get that big, right? And we have to admit that oftentimes when we think about church programs or we think about a church congregation or we think about what's happening here, we absolutely get caught up in the quantitative. Not just the quality of things, but the numbers of people. And I'm not saying that numbers aren't bad. In fact, I think it would be more helpful if instead of people pretending and us pretending like we weren't affected by those things that we would just confess, you know what? Oftentimes, our ego does have something to do with why we do what we do. And perhaps the church would be better served if pastors and those of us who served in these places could actually confess that we are concerned. Not just about getting people saved, which is often what is said, but maybe, just maybe, we ought to be confessing that Jesus has become a vehicle of sorts for us building our own kingdoms and our fame and whatever we want to promote of ourselves. Because interestingly, this small section of the scripture has been used over and over throughout the centuries to try and crack the code for how you get this machine to work. And yet I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's what we ought to be chasing it here. I will read to you the few verses that have been looked at intensely for the centuries to try and crack the code for how we get this thing to grow. It says in verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had in need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved." Now again, if we were looking at this, and this were the how and the what, can you see how churches, communities of people throughout the centuries have tried to get back to this? Often we will hear churches or communities of faith say, I just want to be a first century church. Or we'll have congregations that rightly and understandably say, we're going to be an Acts 2.42 church. Have you guys heard that language before? So let's break this down really quickly. Some of the components that we see here in the scripture of how to get this thing to grow. It's listed out the apostles teaching. Right, when we see the apostles teaching in Mego, you can just leave this up. Apostles teaching is in reference to those eyewitnesses, the first disciples who are commissioned. They're sent out these apostles. And over and over in the New Testament, you will see those eyewitnesses of Jesus, those disciples saying their task is to remind people of what they saw firsthand. Peter says, I think it is right for me to remind you. Or John says, that which we have heard and seen from the beginning, which we have touched with our own hands and seen with our eyes. So the apostles' teaching is reminding the people over and over of what they got firsthand from Jesus, which is why Matthew's gospel can end with Jesus commissioning them, saying to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And the gospel of Matthew would have been a manual of sorts for early Christians. And then we see fellowship. We've heard sermons or messages before of the Greek koinonia, and we've talked about this wildness, this goodness of give and take these relationships that are life-giving, and we could say that is a factor to growth. And then the breaking of bread. We think, well, it's just pulling things apart. No, we understand that Jesus Christ at his last supper instituted what we call now communion, where he takes those ordinary elements of the bread and the wine And now it has today become a more somber portion and sacrament of our services. But truly and wholly, the point of communion, Jesus says, is do this in remembrance of me. So it's all about remembering Jesus. And the early church would have had full meals in which that happened. And then two, the prayers. And the article, the, is inserted there. Often our translation will say, and to prayers. But the reason why I put that there, it's in there in the Greek, is because it reminds us that at this point in time, they're still pretty regimented in when they pray. Those traditional Jewish prayer times. Okay, next slide, Mango. They were filled with awe. Awe can be translated to fear and wonder. They are bewildered. And then they sold to give to anyone who had a need. They took their possessions and they would make sure that anyone who had need could get what they needed. Some of us look at that and go, that sounds incredible. Some of us think that sounds like communism. Some of us look at that and think, I don't know what the heck to think about that. I don't know if I can do that, but we see it here. And then every day they're together in the temple courts, again, connecting them still to their Jewish faith and heritage. And then finally they broke bread in their homes. So we start seeing this movement away from just the place, the temple, into their neighborhoods. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That sounds good. I get pumped when I eat. 
And then they praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. There's something about this movement of people that's getting good buzz in the community. In other words, these early followers of Jesus aren't getting quite bashed yet. There's something about them that is pretty darn attractive. And you think about a social movement where everyone's taking care of everyone, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So we could have made this sermon about picking all of that apart and saying, Sunridge Community Church, it's time for us to do this, 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 and this, because clearly after COVID and after all the crazy things in the world, our church is small now, and so we need to grow this bad boy up. That's not going to be the message for today. Here's next, fill in the blank. You see, tucked away and all that. We actually have the answer to how all this happened. And the answer is not really simple, even though it seems simple. The answer is the Lord. It says, and day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. But why is this not a simple answer? And, you know, when I was our high school pastor years ago, I I used to tell our students that you could wait for God all that you wanted and talk about how you wanted God's will to be done in your life. And if you decided that you were going to lay down in bed for the rest of your life and wait for God to do something, not much was going to happen. I mean, a lot would happen, but not that much. And so when we say the Lord is responsible for how and what happens, may I remind you that in our scripture, in our New Testament in particular, when we see the word Lord, and we hear the early Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios, that in and of itself is a wild statement because we're saying Caesar is not Lord or any other thing that we could place high is not Lord. And when we say Jesus is Lord, we also think about contrast because Jesus is not the type of Lord or master or king that we expect Jesus to be. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just talking about a Lord that says, I demand your obedience, even though obedience is certainly a component to this dynamic relationship. There's overflow and response. And when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just saying this is the self-denial that just hurts so bad all the time, even though, of course, self-denial and it being painful is a component to this dynamic relationship between myself and our community of faith and Jesus being Lord. We also marvel at Jesus' self-sacrifice, his sacrificial love that would make all of this possible. And so ultimately, when we see the word, the Lord added to their numbers daily, we think specifically about Jesus Christ and his relationship with us as individual people, persons, and then communities of faith, and then every concentric circle that there goes to fill out the rest of the cosmos. Jesus is Lord of all. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. It's all his So here, I think, is the real question. Not how do we get this thing to grow. Not how do we do this better. Here's what I'd like to present today as a better question for for us to ask. Will the church choose to pursue the challenges and joys of learning? That's fun. Anyone here like to learn? Some of you are like, no. I think a good definition for what learning is, is that learning is 
a process that leads to change. Learning is a process that leads to change. It's not just the acquiring of information. It is indicative of something transforming. Right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think it's so important that learning is put front and center because when we hear Jesus say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he's saying, go therefore and make learners, lifelong learners of all nations. It's about learning. So I want to talk a little bit about learning there. You guys okay with that? I want to give you the resume of some of the great people that I'm getting to learn from right now as I'm halfway through my master's program. These people are remarkable. It's been such a gift to learn from these folks. I don't talk about what I'm doing in school very often because it feels very personal. I don't want it to just be grabbed at. Uh, but I've shared before that I'm studying industrial organizational psychology. It's the study of human behavior in the workplace toward effective organizations. But let me just list off some of the professors that I get to, get to learn from. Professor Jennifer Stein, she has three degrees from Stanford University, including a PhD in history. She serves as the managing director of professional education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and is the founding executive director of MIT Professional Education in the School of Engineering at MIT. Dr. Stein was incredible. What about Professor Michael K. Thomas? He's the president and CEO of the New England Board of Higher Education. He earned his doctorate in education and social policy from Harvard Graduate School of Education. He has an MBA from Boston University. Or Professor Jessie Snedeker, she's one of my favorites, literally one of the most brilliant minds, watching her in the classroom. I, I mean, I've never heard anyone like Professor Snedeker. She is the professor of psychology and head of Harvard's Laboratory of Deve Developmental Studies. And this is my favorite part. She is an information processing cognitive psychologist who specializes in psycholinguistics. There's just a few of the remarkable individuals that I'm having the opportunity to get to learn from. And there are folks on here that I've been enlisted off that I really enjoy, but they just keep blowing our minds with all the accolades and the stuff that they've done to make us feel like, what in the world are we even doing? But the reason why I'm listing off these individuals isn't just to get to brag on them, but to emphasize the point that as I'm studying human behavior in the workplace, one of the things that has become so, so apparent to me is that it is pretty darn obvious that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Because when we're studying human beings and we're seeing layers of predictability in how we perform or act based off of the different environments that we find ourselves in, I am so, so thrilled that it appears that outside of the church, because the church doesn't own it all, there are countless individuals, and I'm assuming there have been many Christ followers, many of you who don't have the vocation of pastoral ministry, but understand that the goal is for all of us to be equipped, to be sent out, to be going and receiving and being disciples of Jesus, Jesus lifelong learners, wherever we are. And so in what we call the secular world, which is just the world, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, we will find that the best practices, the things that are working organization after organization sound a whole lot like the heart of Jesus. Considering the interests of others, paying attention, listening. 
And the fact that many organizations are pursuing this next slide to be a learning organization, an organization that has developed the continuous capacity to adapt and change, while traditional organizations are oriented toward controlling rather than learning. Again, if discipleship means learner, lifelong learner, and the church is supposed to be a community of regular people who have been called and sent by God to be lifelong learners with, toward, and for Jesus Christ, then is this not at the core our DNA? Are we not supposed to be a learner organization? Isn't this supposed to be who we are? I think what's really funny about all this, of course, is when we look at our roots, sometimes, excuse me, the church can say, well, that sounds a little bit too intellectual, or that sounds a little bit like we're pursuing knowledge, and they will point to passages like this within our target stream, chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. So after this healing scene of this man who was laying there brought before the religious elite, particularly the Sadducees, when you hear Sadducees, it's sad. They are sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. That was from Bible college. That's from Bible college. You didn't make that up. Uh, that's how you remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so they're complaining about how the disciples are talking about the resurrection, and so they're sad about it, blah, blah, blah. They are amazed that they are uneducated and ordinary. And so I've heard Christians say, see, like, we don't need to learn. Like, look at the disciples. And I think, that's totally missing the point. Look at the language here. When it says they are ordinary. So the uneducated part literally means they were illiterate. I mean, that's wildness. But the ordinary part is that they were unclean. The religious are looking at the disciples and saying, you are unclean. And I love that ordinary is described as unclean because ordinary is so, so important. It's all the ordinary stuff that makes the extraordinary stuff happen, the stuff that people cannot see. And I love that in the Greek, you guys try and read that on your own. Just Read that out, that, that italicized word. <laughs> Idiote. <laughs> it sounds like Italian or Spanish for idiot. They're unclean. These idiots. Probably the best part about this, they recognize them as companions of Jesus. Now, this is what I love about this word companion. When we see it, it looks like a noun, right? Person, place, or thing, right? Companions. Of Jesus. In the Greek, this is actually a verb. Interest. I heard a huh. I know. It's a verb. And, and it's in the imperfect voice and active tense. The imperfect means it started in the past. We don't have an understanding of the completion of it. And then active, it's still happening. So this is so, so cool, you guys. I know it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but the fact that companions is a verb in this imperfect and active voice and tense means that they recognize them as still being with Jesus, even though Jesus had ascended already. Remarkable. Remarkable. So here is our next fill in the blank. If we want his discipleship, if that's the goal for us to be lifelong learners or a learning organization, a movement of people who are stoked on the fact that we get to learn from the creator of the cosmos. And here's a little acronym that we can use that hopefully will keep us 
and present tense, excited for the future. So here's the first one, L, look, look, look longer at Jesus and be perplexed. Look longer at Jesus and be perplexed. When they do infant studies, so when Professor Snedeker, her Harvard Developmental Lab of studies, when she's seeing and being with children and trying to understand mechanisms for how they process information, we'll see that oftentimes infants are presented with scenarios and they habituate them. And so they show them something long enough so it doesn't seem to provoke any new type of interest, right? They'll show them the same scene over and over and over again until it's almost like, yeah, that's a, that's a cat, right? And then suddenly they put up, I don't know, a fish. And you'll see the infant dispituate and there's like perplexed there. What? What is that? Because if I've just seen 10 different cats and suddenly I'm seeing a fish, I'm going to stare at that longer because it's not what I expected. And there are more advanced studies where they show that infants are already being perplexed by pictures of things that don't seem to make sense. Like a shape of something that should not be held up because of the position of where it is. And so gravity should have made that happen. And so psychologists are theorizing that there must be innate modules for learning and interpreting the outside world from the earliest of ages that cause and effect. And my friends, if you hear Jesus and you are not perplexed by him, that I don't know who we are talking about anymore. And look at what they say about Jesus as they're speaking to them. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and unrighteous one, righteous one, and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Now, if we had a ton of time today, we would just spend time thinking about the wildness of Jesus and looking at him. Because we forget that in the first century world, when they looked at Jesus, when his contemporaries looked at Jesus, they did not see someone perfect. They saw someone who was sinful. We have to remember that. That contextually and historically, when Jesus' religious contemporaries in particular, and even the regular society looked at Jesus, they saw someone who was sinful because his behavior looked sinful. He spent time with idiotes, idiots, ordinary, unclean people. And then he ate and he drank with them. And he went fishing with them. And he went on long walks. And then he carried kids and spent time with women. He did all the things that were supposed to be sinful. He looked sinful. He was perplexing. And Christians today, if we are not blown away over and over by who Jesus is, we're going to end up with something really stale. Because otherwise, it is pretty darn boring. It's pretty darn boring to come to a place, and no offense to the stuff that we do here, but like sing some songs, listen to us talk to you, and then go out in the world. It's like, that's it? What in the world? So here's our next fill in the blank. The E, examine. It's time for us to examine our common fears about our differences. We've got to look at it closely. And the reason why 
none of the apostles would have said they were going to be in Acts 2.42 church is because if that were the case, the book of Acts would not have had to have been written. Because when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in Acts chapter 2, when they are still in Jerusalem, it's a homogenous community. There isn't diversity there. They're still Jews. And if it had stayed that way, most of us sitting in this room, unless we were of Jewish heritage, we would not have been able to participate. Does that make sense? We are here because the church did not remain in Acts 2.42 church. It started there. It was beautiful. But it had to push out beyond that. Look again, this is what it said. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's actually a problem. Did you know that? That's a problem. That's not something to say, wow, that is the best. And even though there are absolutely positive elements of this, and we ought to look positively at some of that, that's not supposed to be the thing that is highlighted from that. I'm going to put up a little abbreviation on your screen, D-E-I, right? And then, Mego, you can go to the parenthetical denotion of that diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Perhaps in your workspaces or out in the world, you've heard of inclusion and diversity efforts, these initiatives to try and bring equity and equality to the workplace so that people feel as though they're valued there, Look at what some of these professors who I'm studying under are writing based off of extensive reports. The business case for inclusion and diversity is stronger than ever. The most diverse companies are now more than likely ever to outperform less diverse peers on profitability. Companies with more than 30% women executives are more likely to outperform companies where this percentage ranged from 10 to 30. And in turn, these companies were more likely to outperform those with even fewer women executives or none at all. As previously found, the likelihood of outperformance continues to be higher for diversity and ethnicity than for gender, yet progress overall has been slow. I'm not here to say this, this, I'm just telling you, the earth is the Lord and everything, in it, and this is what we're finding and seeing in all places. And the early church figured that out. It's why when Paul is writing in Galatians, that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying there is it's not that suddenly all these differences are gone. Clearly, there are tons of differences here. But that's the beauty, the differences that we can be together and in Christ. So let me show you a slide for something that can happen if we do not consider and want to move outside of everyone having, having everything in common. Perhaps you've heard about groupthink. It is a psychological phenomenon that has been studied throughout the centuries with groups of leaders and people who make decisions that seem sound, that turn out to be some catastrophes in history, such as the Crusades, Pearl Harbor. I mean, over and over, we have these instances. And here are the antecedents, the stuff that seems to indicate that groupthink is at risk. Group cohesion isolation, strong biased leadership, and then high decisional stress. So you have groups of people where they are cohesive. There's synergy there. They're isolated. They're separated from the larger numbers. There's strong biased leadership. And then you put stressors, external, internal, on those individuals. And then you start seeing the symptoms of what groupthink looks like, belief in invulnerability of the group, belief in unanimity of group members, 
pressure on the center so people that think differently, an appointing of a mind guard, someone to guard, rationalizing, stereotyping, self-censorship, so not speaking up, and then illusions of morality. And what does this lead to? Defective decision-making. It happens all the time. And when we look at the history of the church in local congregations and communities, we see over and over and over this taking place. And yet that's not the end of the story. This isn't a message to make us feel bad about ourselves. The next part of our acronym, A, ask God for gratitude and discomfort. Ask God presently to help us want to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Look later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 21, 23, after threatening them again, Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. That 40 years thing is a really, really big deal. It's really important because 40 years communicates wholeness and completeness. There's something structurally sound about 40 years. In Scripture, we see the testing and wandering in the wilderness. We see the reign of David and Saul. And we see Jesus when he is tempted in the wilderness. The number 40 is really important. And so when Luke notes that this man who was healed was over 40 years old, he is saying there's extra emphasis on the fact that this man, after four decades of looking like someone God did not care about, could actually be changed. That's what Luke is putting in there. That's what's happening. You know, there is an orientation that perhaps some of you have heard about having a growth mindset, right? Versus a fixed mindset. Comes to the work of Carolyn Dweck. But really at the core of that is this belief that people who get into this entity or helpless orientation start to feel like they are either this or that. I'm either good at math or I'm not good at math. I'm either athletic or I'm not athletic. And so when we operate from this place, they will say people who are like, I think everyone's capable of all things. So I think that when we operate from places where we are fearful, we do not want to seek out things that show that we can't perform in that domain. So that's the helpless orientation. I can't do that. I've never done that before because our value is affixed to whether or not we can do something. And if we were critiqued about not being able to do something, well, then everything's falling apart. But in the other mindset, which is incremental in growth, there's an understanding that human beings who operate from a place of wanting challenge and knowing that they can learn and grow through it, they will not just throw up their hand and say, I can't do it. And what's so wild to me the reason why the modern church is falling apart at the seams is because we look like a child or an individual who is operating from that entity or helpless orientation. I can't do it. Jesus has come back already. Not because I don't want to see Jesus face to face. I absolutely do. But remember, they were seen as companions of Jesus. They were with Jesus. Not in the way that they desired, but they were with him. And if the church today continues to operate from a place of pride and insecurity, we will sound like kids who come up to obstacles and say, well, that's just stupid. That puzzle's dumb. I don't care about that. Does that not sound like how we talk about the world? How dumb the world is. 
It's going to hell in a handbasket anyways. Are we going to be people that operate from that place? Mego, I'm going to skip ahead to the slide that says, this is mine, our discipleship. Because I think it's important and it's been helpful for me over the years as I've continued to struggle in my faith and in my life to remind myself that when things are difficult and I want to throw out my hand and say, this is stupid, this is dumb, I don't want to do this, I say over and over to myself, this is my discipleship. I want to give up. And in many ways I've acted like giving up, but Jesus hasn't given up on me or us. This is my discipleship. I, I'm going to find a way to trust that he is the way. This is my, this is our discipleship. That's what makes this powerful. This is our opportunity to not be helplessly oriented, but to trust incrementally that God is growing and changing and transforming us. So here's your next fill in the blank. We're almost done. Or remember that joy is awareness of God's grace. Let me just read you a little bit of when Saul is still going by his Hebrew name, Saul. Uh, Saul's name didn't change from Saul to Paul, by the way. That's a, that's a little thing that uh, they also remind us in Bible college. He, most people had two names, a, a Hebrew name and a Latin or Greek name. And so Saul was Paul's Hebrew name, and then Paul was his Latin or Roman name. But earlier on, when he's more referenced in his Hebrew name, when he was so fixed to that Jewish identity. That's why we see more of that. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we see Saul approving of killing Christians, and then a severe persecution being against the church in Jerusalem, and all apostles being scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And in the next slide, we see that Philip eventually goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaims the message to them. That's chapter, or excuse me, verse 5. And then that final slide. As, as Philip is expressing all of these things, look at verse 8. There was great joy in that city. Now just stay with me for a little bit. The reason why that's so important is because Samaria would have been a region where God should not have been, right? These were the half-breeds, the people that didn't count. There was great joy in this place because it seems like God has communicated to them that he is there. And I've shared this before from the stage, but joy in the Greek Hara, it looks like chara, is related to grace, which looks like charis, charis. It'd be easier if instead of joy and grace, we had the words like joy and joyce, right? Right, joy and joyce. If grace, the word grace were joyce, we'd see all oh, those are really connected, right? It's for joyce that you've been saved through faith. That would be funny, but you guys, it's anyways. We see that there's connection here, and this is why I had Britt read out of that prayer from Solomon, the message when he opened up this morning. He read from that passage that said that the prayer of Solomon is that, that God would not give up on them, because that's what grace is. It's a word that denotes movement and leaning forward, and so over and over in the Old Testament, we see that God has turned his face or his back. There's this expectation that God has given up on them, but that is not what has happened. And so joy is the awareness of the fact that God has not given up on us in the midst of all of our helpless orienting of ourselves and wanting to give up in our sinfulness and our pride and all those terrible things that are just real because we're humans. I'd like to invite the band up. 
You know, it's more than just being terrible. There's exciting stuff about being made in the image of God. And so here's your last N. Your last bit of the acronym. N. Notice the big, small invitations. Notice the big, small invitations. And in several weeks, uh, I'm sure this is going to be part of our teaching here, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But when we talk about the church becoming the model for DEI and diversity and equity and inclusion, we can get to Acts chapter 10 where Peter has this dream about this Gentile named Cornelius. And, and, and Cornelius comes, and, and then this is what happens in, in Acts chapter 10. And it says here in verse 23, so at the end of that little section, so Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. This doesn't look like that big of a deal, right? It looks like a guy named Cornelius comes. He says, hey, come hang out of my house. Cool. Let's eat and drink with joy and gladness of heart. That, that's what you think is there, but something is wild. And, Mego, you can put up this uh, long word. Can you say hapax? Oh, come on. Hapax. Legomenon. Legomenon. Da, 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 da. Legomenon. That's right here in my head. A hapax legomenon isn't just some Greek thing. A hapax legomenon refers to the singular time that a word is used within the corpus of writing or works, right? So if, if, if one time we used a word out of our whole essay in class, our professor would rather go, is that really your writing? Or, wow, why did you select that word? If someone noticed, out of all these things, a small word in the whole corpus of writing, it might be pretty darn important. And so let me show you just one of several hapaks in this section that we're in. Luke, in this particular section, he actually gets pretty crapped. He starts dropping in words that we don't find anywhere else in your whole New Testament, okay? Not just in the book of Acts. Nowhere else in your New Testament is this word found. Now say that. Oh, I heard some good ones. You can say ace or ace, kaleo, me. Ace, kaleo, me. It's the only time that this word is used in your New Testament, and I titled this sermon that. I want that. That was the title of the sermon. I haven't referred to it up until now. I want that. I want that small little word. I want that. See, here is the the word, Mary, you can put in that last verse. So Peter invited them and gave them lodging. Esclesimenos. The one time that this word is used in the entirety of your New Testament is when Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus who denied him and then was restored by Jesus and sent, is suddenly at the precipice, but precipice tends to be a negative word, suddenly at the edge of something radically changing and all it takes is an invitation, an invitation to come and be with him. 
And that, my friends, a small big moment is the kingdom of God. That right there. It's not all the big programs. It's not all the things that we're going to say is going to grow this place or blow us up because all those things are just our fun get-tos. We can decide in light of the fact that it is Jesus Christ inviting us. We can choose. How do we want to do this in this time and place? How are we going to be people who steward in this valley our role and our calling to respond to the risen Christ? You know in that word, esclame, kaleo is the word call. And that's the word that Jesus uses when he's saying, I came not to seek out or call the healthy, but the unhealthy. He comes not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. He comes to seek and save the lost. Cleo is his invitation. And let me just say something about the early church. It was the slipperiest slope in the history of humanity. That's what it would have been termed. But it's really more than that. The invitation of God can look slippery and scary to try and be a place where there's difference here, and yet Jesus Christ is exalted because instead of that being us falling away, that is us trying to trek up the hill of Calvary and marvel at Jesus, the Christ. And we're talking about our communities of faith and doubt and all of our issues and struggles. Don't try and put the topics on this message. See the one on the tree who doesn't stay there that then invites us to be companions, idiot companions with him. Would you join us in worship? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.